When we gather around the Lord's table, it's not only the opportunity for us to reflect upon the gift of Christ, his death on our behalf, the reality of his resurrection as a confirmation that the work of God in saving sinners has been completed. But Jesus himself stated that when we partake of the elements that he designated to remind us of his death and resurrection and the work that he has accomplished on behalf of his people, we do this in remembrance of him. It's one thing for us to remember the work that he performed. It is important for us to remember the benefits that are ours by God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. But most importantly, it is needful for us to remember Him. Who is the one who has accomplished this work of salvation? Who is the one who willingly laid down his life on behalf of others? That, as Paul would tell Titus, we could become the righteousness of God through him. In order to better understand who it is, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Colossians and to Colossians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul expresses his prayerful desires for the saints at Colossae, and in doing so, reminds them and also informs us of who he is, that as we partake of this table, we do this in remembrance of him. Allow me to begin reading in verse 9. For this reason also, the reason that Paul is recounting is the fact that the gospel came to them in power and they were transformed, delivered from a previous way of living into a relationship with Christ and one that was manifested in how they conducted their daily lives. And so he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. For what reason? So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing by the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the obtaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is above, or he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul and sent to the local church found in the city of Colossae. It was written about the same time as two other epistles. That would be the epistle to the Ephesians and also the epistle to the Philippians. And these three epistles together have been categorized or known as the prison epistles. They were written by the Apostle Paul, most likely while in his first imprisonment in Rome. And the book of Colossians was written somewhere around 61 AD. In this of interest, we find that the book of Colossians is very similar to the book of Ephesians. In fact, if you read the book of Ephesians and then follow it by reading the book of Colossians, it will impress you that it's almost as if the Apostle Paul had an outline in mind. And the ideas that he develops in Ephesians are in a parallel way developed in Colossians. Now the difference would be, first, that the book of Ephesians is a little longer and some of the concepts are embellished a little more than they are in the book of Colossians. But you will find the sequence of the development of his thoughts and the ideas that he includes are very similar in both books following the same pattern and sequence. In both epistles, the focus is on the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, which are known as the church. Now, what's the difference? Well, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul will emphasize the church as the spiritual body of Christ. And in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul will emphasize Christ as the head of the church. So the details that he develops will be a little different. In the one, he'll talk about us as members of his body being fitted together so that every joint is supplying for the benefit of the whole. And in this one, he reminds us that Christ is the one who has been exalted beyond, above all things and he has been established as the head of the church. In that regard, the Apostle Paul develops the idea of the preeminence of Jesus Christ in all things as the supreme one 
over all. And the things that he manifests first in this explanation of the exaltation of Christ are two ideas concerning him. The first, he says in verse 15, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And the second thing he states about him in verse 19, that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, for all the essence of what is true of God to dwell in him. So when we come and do this in remembrance of him, or as you and I have the occasion in our daily life to want to know him better, the first thing of relevance and importance for us is to recognize that the one that we have the privilege of calling our Lord and our Savior is none other than God in the flesh. We just sang that. And sadly, sometimes when we sing that reality, we uh, fail to appreciate the significance of what we're saying. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my what? God. Now I'm hearing newer versions of that old hymn by Wesley changing it because people fail to appreciate who Jesus Christ is. And so I'm hearing some today that sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my king, would die for me? He is your king. He is the king of all creation. But oh, the profound truth is that God took to himself human flesh. And as John said, we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? That's why in the Psalms, as Solomon reflected upon the reality of our sinful condition before him, before God in Psalm 130, he said, Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who would stand? And if you are still of the misguided persuasion that you have enough goodness in yourself to commend yourself to God, then you don't understand the essence of sin, your true condition, that even your righteous acts are like filthy rags before God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we've all together become worthless, We're an offense to God and his enemy. And the amazing truth is that thou, my God, would die for me. It's expressed by first saying he is the image of the invisible God. The reality is no one has seen God at any time. Not prior to the incarnation, And in some senses, in the essence of all that he is, for all eternity, no one will ever see God. He's vaster than the universe itself. Where can you be that you can behold all of his splendor and glory? Not even the highest of heavens, not even the vastness of this universe can contain him. 
But God was pleased to be manifested in human form so that as Jesus was asked by his disciples, show us what the Father is like, Christ could say, he that has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God's like? Study what we have written about Jesus Christ and recognize that I can say, behold my God when I see Jesus Christ my Lord. He is the image. That Greek word is brought into English as icon. And basically what it means is that he is the very essence of that everything that is true of the invisible being that is in a different realm and in a different sphere of which you and I exist have now been in bodily form manifested through Jesus Christ. All that is essential of God is seen in him. And that's why Paul concludes this section when he speaks about the exaltation of Christ, states that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness. Everything that is true of God, all that is essential to be classified as God, all of the glory that belongs to God, resides in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And so when Christ said, this do in remembrance of me, let us first in hum humility before him recognize that when we consider Jesus Christ, we're, we're on holy ground. We are looking at the greatest of all mysteries that God would dwell among us in human flesh and that what we would see manifested in him and will behold for all eternity is the essence of all that God is like. Not only is it a statement that God is the one who dwelt among us, but Paul affirms it by expressing how his preeminence is shown. Notice he says in verse 16, For in him all things were created, in the heavens and earth, whether they're visible or invisible, all things have been created through him and for him. The reality is that Jesus Christ, as the invisible God, is the source of all that exists. And he is declared here in verse 15 as the firstborn of all creation. That term firstborn does not mean that Jesus is part of the creation. He makes it very clear as he uh, explains it in verse 16. He is the source of all that exists. If Jesus Christ is the essence of God, if God the Son existed before he took to himself flesh and dwelt among us and was known as you and I know him today by the name of Jesus, it is a recognition that he is the one that spoke and brought all things into existence. And by calling him the firstborn, I have to think like a Jew. And the reality is this term does not mean that he is part of the rest, but instead is a recognition that he is the one who has authority over and he is the one that is the heir of all that is in that category. The firstborn in a Jewish home was the one who would take on the authority of the parent and be the patriarch of the family when the father was gone. 
He was the one who had the authority and the rule over that family's possessions and its operation. And in the same way, he is the one that received the inheritance or the double portion. And so what it is saying here of Jesus Christ is that he is the one that has been given that supreme position as the ruler over all the universe. And he is the one who is to inherit or receive unto himself all the universe and its existence. Isn't that why we read in the Psalms where God the Father said to God the Son, ask of me and I'll give you what? The nations as your inheritance. All creation was sourced through him. All creation was created for his own pleasure. And as such, he is the one that has the supreme authority over creation, and he is the one that will inherit all that exists. Not only is there the recognition that he is the sovereign over who is the heir of all, but notice it says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. The reality. What is sustaining this universe today? See, if we're blinded by the reality that there is more than just what we can see in the visible world around us and the forces that are at work within this universe, there's a recognition that behind the scenes, quote unquote, in the invisible world that really is the source of what is now the visible world, God is the one who is sustaining. God is the one who is upholding. God is the one who is maintaining that which he has created. I read in the Psalms where it talks not only about the universe itself and giving command on how far the waves of the ocean can go and how the light will be distributed on the earth and what uh, weather pattern will be brought to pass all under his control but it says God is also the one that sustains every creature that he has made. And when he withdraws his spirit, they expire and are no more. You and I have derived existence. Why is it we have life and health today? Why is it that we are able to carry on the activities that are before us? Because Jesus Christ is the one who is upholding all things. Jesus Christ is the one who gives life to all things and maintains and sustains the creation that he called into existence for his own good pleasure and now maintains it for his glory. How about history itself? It's not just chance circumstances. It's not things being um, happening without a reason or a pattern behind them. From beginning to end, God has a design in the history of man. And the climax of the culmination of that is that Jesus Christ is the one that will be lifted up and exalted. He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords and every knee will bow to him, whether it be demonic forces or angelic forces, whether it be unbelievers or believers, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the design in God's working in history 
is to make all the nations of the earth the footstool for Jesus Christ and to exalt him. Who really is in charge of what's going on today? It's my Lord and my Savior, the one that I am remembering when I take the bread that is the symbol of his body that was broken on our behalf and I partake of the cup which reminds me that God has graciously instituted a new covenant where my sins and my lawless deeds will be remembered against me no more. Not only that, but notice, because of what he has done, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He is the one, as it says in verse 17, who is before all things. In other words, he has the preeminence. He has the priority. He is also the one that has come, as he says in verse uh, 18 at the very end, so that he himself might have the first place where? In everything. That he has first place in all things. He alone is the one that is worthy. That's why when John was taken up to see the throne room and have a picture of God bringing to climax all that he has promised in his word in the course of human history, there is a scroll in the hand and it says, who is worthy to take its scroll and to open its content and to break its seals? And you know what the uh, statement was that's made in heaven? Michael's not worthy. Gabriel's not worthy. None of the angels are worthy. Joe isn't worthy. Sid isn't worthy. Marcia isn't worthy. I'm not picking them out with me. None of you are worthy. John says, I looked and I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book and to break its seals, to bring history to its climax. And John was told, stop weeping, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. He is the firstborn of the resurrection. He is the one that has broken the power of sin and of Satan. He is the one who has triumphed over death itself. And he is the one who will be the heir of all that is bestowed for the recipients of God's grace. Jesus Christ alone is worthy. And he is the one who has preeminence in everything. In everything. So what has he done? What is it that my God has done for me? What is it? That is a reflection of how deep is the Father's love for us. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Well, through this work of Jesus Christ, there is the reality that he gave himself as the sacrifice for sin. That he has accomplished redemption, as it's stated back in verse 14, the forgiveness of sins. It's why Paul, when he wrote to the Romans, said, right now, at this moment, there is no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because what the law could not do, what human effort could not accomplish, God did. Though your sins be as scarlet, He's washed them white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed your transgressions from you. And He will never hold them against you again. You know why? Jesus paid it all. He didn't just deal with some of the sin. But if you are one of his sheep, if you have now had the privilege of being called one of his children, he has paid all the indebtedness, all of the offenses, all of the sin and your enmity against God that was rightfully on your account. And it's been wiped clean. And he doesn't just leave you in that neutral position. He has translated you out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the dominion of sin and Satan, and has placed you into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ the Lord. And the reality is that if you are in Christ, you're no longer what you used to be. The reality is that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is passing away and all things are becoming new. The certainty is that your position before God has been changed. When God died on behalf of others, you were his enemy. But now in Jesus Christ, you're his beloved child. And it's all because of the work of Christ Jesus the Lord. When we gather around his table... We certainly want to be faithful to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To recognize that great watershed moment in history when Christ became sin for us that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. But what we really want to remember as well is who he is. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me?